Hello and welcome to this Blackwell Online podcast. My name is George Miller, and my guest today is science writer Philip Ball, who worked for many years as an editor of Nature magazine, while simultaneously publishing a string of successful popular science titles, including a biography of water, a study of Chartres Cathedral and the medieval mind, and Critical Mass, How One Thing Leads to Another, which won the 2005 Aventus Prize for Science Writing. His new book is called The Music Instinct, and results from a lifelong passion for music. In it, Philip tackles questions such as how the brain perceives music, and why it has such power to move us. We began, though, with a question of the origins of music. The short answer to that is really we don't know. There are lots and lots of ideas about what it might be. I suspect that all of them are just going to remain ideas because, you know, really the the origins have been buried. And in fact, it may be that there isn't a single origin of music. It may be that it served many purposes and was many different things. It still is in some ways. So one idea was that uh, Charles Darwin's idea was that music was a form of sexual selection, um, like the peacock's tail, really, that it was a, a sort of an overt display of of skill that would then have some purpose of uh, attracting a mate. Other people suggest that there's something more social in the function of music. If you look today at at pre-literate societies, music seems to really have that purpose, that it's very much um, a social activity. And, you know, there's the idea that it promotes cohesion and um, promotes group identity. Other people think that perhaps it had its origins in the musicality of mother-to-infant speech, which is seems to be something instinctively. Everyone does it in every culture. And it's, you know, it's very clear that there is more musicality in the voice. There's more rising and falling of tones and that infants do respond uh, more to that sort of voice. How that would make a transition to something that a society as a whole practices in the various ways that they do is is far from clear but uh, you know this is a problem with all of the ideas that have been proposed for the origin of music it's very hard to 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 get further than a sort of plausibility argument now you call the book the music instinct and i guess there's an echo there of the language instinct and I suppose you're implicitly setting music as, as something, one of, the, one of the key things which define us as being human, that's as, as intrinsic to us as language. Well, to be honest, the title is a, a slightly cheeky take on Stephen Pinker's The Language Instinct, because in, in that book, Pinker famously made the suggestion that music... He called it auditory cheesecake. Uh, So his idea was that basically music is something that free rides on the back of other cognitive faculties that we have, that it has no intrinsic adaptive purpose in itself. It's just something that we do using using mental abilities that we've developed for other purposes. And he suggested that unlike many other cognitive processes like language, music could disappear from our cultures and we would just carry on as normal. And I'm challenging that idea, but not in the same way as many people have tried to challenge it in the past. A lot of people interpreted Pinker's comments as somehow undermining the intrinsic value of music. They 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 sort of took the view that unless we regarded music as somehow adaptive it it wouldn't have an intrinsic value that somehow he was he was saying you know there's there's nothing particularly special or important about music 
What I'm suggesting is that regardless of whether or not music is somehow genetically imprinted in our in our minds, it does seem to be an instinct in the sense that it's something that we will inevitably do as a species, that we have particular cognitive tools that make us, in a, in a way, make us hear the world musically, that make us, that give us a, 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 an instinct to group together certain kinds of sound in a way that makes them coherent and gives them almost the attributes of a language. These are capacities that either we learn from experience or that perhaps we are born with. I suspect probably a mixture of both. But either way, they're in our brains and you're not going to get rid of music without changing the human brain. Phil, how did you make this vast subject manageable? Because it it stretches across millennia and you take in neuroscience and philosophy and aesthetics and musicology and all sorts of domains. How did you actually formulate a way to, to make it manageable as a project? Well, it, it often teetered on the brink of feeling entirely unmanageable and whether or not it ended up being manageable, uh, others will have to judge. But it was a tremendous challenge because it does take in all these 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 many different areas, as you say. But I think that it, for one thing, it's possible to to break music, the cognition of music down into a few basic activities or uh, functions that, that, that the brain does. So one of them is simply making sense of the sound, how we, how we hear pure tones, if you like, or how we hear simple musical notes. And then there's the question of how those notes get strung together into something that we recognize as a tune or a melody. And that's really where these pattern forming, these sort of binding principles that we have seem to, to come into play. But one of the biggest areas, one of the most difficult areas really in talking about the cognition of music is why it has an emotional response. And you know, for a lot of people, that's really why they listen to music. I think that's, that's probably a big part of, and certainly not all of, but a big part of why music has such a central role in so many cultures. In many ways, I think it's still the big unknown, but it's one that over the past decade or so, people have become increasingly emboldened, really, to, to approach. And partly that's because of the, the emergence of new brain imaging techniques, which allow us to, to, to look at what emotional apparatus in the brain is, is being used when, when we're listening. So that was another area. And then th- there are questions about how music and language overlap. In a sense, how we hear music in a grammatical or a syntactic way. And that then leads on to the broader question of whether music can have meaning in some sense, what that might mean, and you know whether music can have any kind of narrative power. So there were these particular um, areas that I think are, are, are sort of common to, to most musical experiences, certainly in Western music, you know, just about any sort of Western music engages all of those faculties. And I think that it, it's also quite clear that that's true for at least most sophisticated musical cultures outside of the Western tradition. Yeah, I wanted to ask you, man, how did you approach those less familiar traditions? Because until comparatively recently, the West has taken rather a condescending attitude to them, and that's, that's clearly changing now. It, it's, I think it's changing partly because of work that's being done on the cognition of music. I think people have who are interested in this have realised that looking at 
non-Western systems of music is, for one thing, it's a very good way of testing people's responses in a way that, that, that isn't too conditioned by what they've heard already, you know, by either using non-Western music on Western subjects or vice versa. And also p- people have become increasingly interested in, in the question of whether there are universalities in music, whether they're u- universals, whether there are things that are common to all cultures, because if there are, then you can at least start to wonder about whether this is telling you something about the, the basic cognitive processes that we all have in, in the human brain, rather than things that have been put there by culture, if you like. So... You know that stimulates interest in non-Western music. Now, I should also say that actually there is now quite a long-standing tradition of certainly of of fifty, sixty, seventy years or so of uh, people who have explored the discipline called ethnomusicology, which looks. It's a funny term because traditionally it's it's tended to to everything that that is non-Western has tended to fall within the remit of ethnomusicology. And somehow Western music was outside of that. I think now there's a more enlightened view that regards all music as you know part of ethnomusicology. And one aspect of that is is how people use music in their everyday lives. So you know a lot of the studies on certainly on music theory but but also the early studies in music cognition tended to draw on western classical music that was you know really the only sort of music that was tested and there are some good reasons why that could be so but actually that's you know testing for one thing it's testing a small part of the musical universe but also it's uh, it, it's making tests using a kind of music that actually isn't you know the majority uh, music in even in western culture so now increasingly people are interested in look sort of looking at how within the west we use music from an ethnomusicological uh, an anthropological perspective what we do with music you mentioned music in everyday life and I think one of the messages of the book is that we are all musical and even those people who claim they are tone deaf and you say that a surprisingly high percentage of people claim to be tone deaf and in fact only a, a, a relatively small fraction of those are in fact what, what could strictly be called tone deaf. That's that's right. People, it's an easy sort of thing that people, you know, often trip off if they feel unconfident about music. They, they, they just... tell you that they're tone deaf I think often that actually means that people um, in the West are embarrassed about their their singing voice it's very hard to get people to, to, to sing and I really wanted to challenge that idea because I, what I wanted to, to to show was that simply hearing music as music, you know, if you're just listening to a piece of nondescript music on the radio, the fact that you can nevertheless hear it as music and uh, is 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 the result of an incredible array of cognitive faculties that you're bringing to bear unconsciously, obviously unconsciously, we don't know that we're doing it, but it it, it brings those to bear on what is a really complex acoustic signal and turns it into something that's coherent and even meaningful to us and emotive to us. So in that sense, pretty much everyone has a highly developed sense of musicality. And I think it's I think it's valuable for us to recognise that that's the case, that actually, you know, listening to music, although it's something that we, we a skill that we acquire unconsciously and acquire at a surprisingly early age on the whole, nevertheless, it's an impressive feat. And it's one that itself carries a strong element of, of musicality. So 
I wanted to challenge that partly because, you know, we have this sort of slightly strange attitude that there's a small proportion of the population who are the musicians and the musical ones and the rest of us are just somehow consumers. But I also wanted to, to challenge it because I think there are ramifications for how we think about music in education. And I really wanted to make a plea for music being seen as a central part of education and not just something that you do if you have the time. There are all sorts of reasons why you can argue for that. And you know, one is utilitarian, that it seems clear that music does increase. And I'm not talking about listening to Mozart as a baby. I'm talking generally about using music that it does, it does enhance intelligence. But you know, the, the arguments shouldn't be simply about utilitarian, utilitarian principles like that. I think that that music clearly also is a social experience, it's a socialising experience, and that it gives people access to a whole sort of realm of human creativity and emotion that it's it, that it's. I think everyone ought to be uh, be encouraged to to discover. Mm. Let me ask you sort of. Big question. How do you hope that readers of the book will have their understanding or their pleasure of music enhanced, either as listeners or as, as players? What, what, what do you think particularly the, the windows you're opening for them might be? I, I'd hope that it might encourage people to listen outside of their comfort zone, I suppose. I mean, it certainly encouraged me to do that. It encouraged me to go and find out about some music that I hadn't heard before and to look for, you know, even if it sounded quite strange to begin with, to to search within it for things that, for, ha- for footholds, really. I found that that was the case for, and I'm still working on it, for uh, for Javanese Gamelan, for example, uh, which, you know, is a, it, it, it's quite sort of fascinating when you first hear it, but I can also imagine that it would be quite intimidating because it sounds very different, quite alien, really, for, for a Western ear. I would hope that if you understand a little bit about not just the, or not necessarily at all about the theory of what's going on there, but about the kinds of cognitive pathways that it's making use of then that it that does become a window through which you can start to to explore it and that's particularly true for some contemporary classical music western classical music for a lot of people um i mean i say contemporary loosely often that sort of tends to mean anything sort of post schoenberg that you know isn't vaughan williams and i think for a lot of people that that is something that's very difficult to to find a way into sometimes and i talk about this in the book sometimes there are good reasons for that and i think sometimes some of the experiments that have been done in contemporary classical music have actually not just ignored but but almost systematically undermined some of the cognitive uh, mechanisms that we need in order to to make sense of music and then you really do have a problem it's it's a sort of arid argument whether you then want to call what comes out music or not but i think it's understandable that people would find it difficult to 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 grab hold of but i think more often it's simply a case of finding a new listening strategy and that's sort of what i want to encourage people at least to think about to show that actually because we have all these different cognitive tools that can be brought to bear you know we can we we don't have to use the familiar ones that we always use there may well be others there may well be other ways of making sense of the music that you know that we have the tools uh, to bring to bear if we if we choose to do that maybe phil i can ask you in conclusion apart from the javanese gamelan 
any other great discoveries you made and any blind spots that you're willing to own up to in your own, in your own <laughs> listening? Yes, both. Um, one of the discoveries, I'd listened on and off to music of uh, Georgi Ligeti and, you know, had never sort of applied my ear properly to it. And I think having listened to more of it through um, uh, writing this book, I just think he's a genius. I think he's one of the most extraordinary explorers of sound that we've had in the 20th century and he's done that in so many different ways one area that i uh, one big area and it's going to be it's probably will sound a bit horrifying that i will confess to still struggling with is opera but i think that as a result of looking into this book i think i have perhaps an understanding of why that might be so because i think one of the difficulties i i've often had with opera is that it doesn't it it seems a very a very artificial way of using the human voice and actually that's that that's literally true that's strictly true it is artificial um the the expressive devices that are used in opera are often quite different from the ones that we generally tend to to use in the spoken word and also there are aspects of opera, because opera arose out of an attempt to try to render, paradoxically perhaps from what I've just said, to try to render human speech in musical form, now being more aware of the distinctions between language and music, I mean there are similarities but there are clear differences as well, it makes me think that that may be, you may be on a hiding to nothing if you're really trying to, to do that. That, that. Or at least, let's say, it's going to result in a compromise to the music if you're trying to make it too language-like in the way that it sounds. 